Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101 part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today, we bring you the story of the 1960 U.S. Olympic basketball team. And the reason I wanted to share the story of this team is because before the 1992 Olympic Dream Team, the 1960 team was considered by many to be the best Olympic team ever assembled. Now, that is high praise, but they were an excellent team by any standard. The 1960 USA Olympic team is also in the Hall of Fame as a team. In previous episodes, I have mentioned that there are four categories by which an individual can make it to the Hall of Fame. The categories are player, coach, referee, and contributor. But there is a fifth category for the Hall of Fame, and that category is for an entire team. The 1960 U.S. Olympic team is one of only 12 teams who have been inducted into the Hall of Fame. Just to get an idea of what it takes to make the Hall of Fame as a team, here are a handful of the other teams that have made it. The 1992 Olympic Dream Team is there for obvious reasons. Another is the Buffalo Germans, which was the first dominant team in basketball history. They dominated the game during the very early 1990s. 1900s. There was also the first team, the group of men who played the very first game ever back in 1891. The Harlem Globetrotters are in there. Immaculata College is in there, which won the first three women's national championships in college back in the 1970s. Also, two of the very early barnstorming teams who dominated from around 1920 and into the 1940s are also in there, the original Celtics and the New York Renaissance. And if you want to hear more about the Renaissance, go all the way back to episode two where we share their story. For the original Celtics, go to episode 28 for their story. As you can see, to make it into the Hall of Fame as a team, the team has to be a team of historical significance. They either did something never done before, or they pushed basketball forward in terms of style or strategy. And the 1960 U.S. Olympic team is deserving of a place in the Hall of Fame. They were inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2010, 50 years after they won that gold medal at the 1960 Rome Olympics. The team was coached by Pete Newell, a Hall of Fame coach in his own right. He was the coach at the University of California at the time, and he served as Olympic coach for that summer. The 1960 U.S. Olympic team won their games by an average of 42.4 points per game, which is second only to the Dream Team. That is why they were considered the best Olympic team ever until the Dream Team showed up in 1992. But before I get into running through the roster of the players who were on that team, it is important to explain the process by which the players were chosen. It will explain why certain players made it that probably would not 
not make the team today. Now, the process I'm going to describe is a process that had been used since 1936 when the Olympics first included basketball as a medal sport. The team that got sent to the Olympics had to be an amateur team. No NBA players were allowed back then. So, if a player had ever signed an NBA contract, they were ineligible from participating in the Olympics. In other words, the United States had to find the 12 best amateur players to form the team. The way they did this was by having a tournament. Eight teams were invited to this tournament. One of the teams was the NCAA champion Ohio State University. There was also a team of college all-stars too. There was another team made up of military personnel. The Army and Navy each had their own basketball leagues, so they put together a combined team of their best players for this tournament. The American Athletic Union, or AAU, also sent their champion, the Peoria Caterpillar, from Illinois. A couple of other AAU teams also participated, the Phillips 66ers and the Wichita Vickers. Today, most people think of AAU basketball being primarily based around middle school and high school players, and that is very true today. But back then, the AAU also had a division for amateur men. Teams were formed all over the country in a variety of leagues that eventually led to a national championship tournament. Many great players prior to 1960 chose not to go to the NBA and instead got regular jobs in order to make more money and then continue playing basketball through the AAU for fun. So when preparing to send an Olympic team, it was important to include AAU teams because they would have players that were just as good or better than the best American college players. At the time, there was no clear leader of the Olympic Olympic basketball team. Today, that organization is called USA Basketball and it is led by Grant Hill. But back in 1960, there was no USA Basketball. Representatives from the NCAA and AAU worked together to form the team. And there was a little bit of a struggle between the two organizations for control of the Olympic team. The AAU wanted nothing more than to have sole control and send an entire team of AAU players to the Olympics. The NCAA, of course, wanted nothing more than to send the best NCAA players to the Olympics. This tournament was their compromise. The two sides agreed that they would take the seven best NCAA players, the four best AAU players, and one player from the military team to form the team that would go to Rome for the Olympics. Now this is a good place to take a break and I'll be right back with that final roster and the Olympic tournament. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Hi, everybody. Dan and Andrew from Hello Old Sports here. We wanted to drop in and let you know about our latest episode. That's right. We interviewed the co-authors of Phyllis George, Shattering the Ceiling, a biography of groundbreaking broadcaster Phyllis George. And her life is really sort of a journey through 20th century America, from Miss America pageants to the Kentucky State House 
to the groundbreaking NFL Today show on CBS, even the Kentucky Colonels, the old ABA. We got into all sorts of stories about the Celtics under Red Arback, about the interview with Roger Staubach, about really all sorts of things, a fight between Brent Musburger and Jimmy the Greek. We really enjoyed talking with Lenny Shulman and Paul Volponi, who teamed up to write this book. The book is on sale right now, wherever books are sold, but, but, you know, within reason, garage sales, probably not. So go <laughs> ahead and pick up a copy today. And if you want a chance to win the book, you can go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways and register for a chance to win. Goodbye, old sports. Welcome back to the show and let us get to the roster of the 1960 Olympic team. Before the break, I shared how the team was chosen. Eight teams were invited to a tournament where 12 players were selected to be part of the final team. One military player chosen was Adrian Smith. He had played his college ball at Kentucky for Adolph Rupp before entering the Army. After leaving the Army, he became an NBA All-Star. The four AAU players named to the team were Lester Lane from the Wichita Vickers, Burdette Halderson of the Phillips 66ers, and Alan Kelly and Bob Boozer from Peoria Caterpillars. Boozer also chose to go to the NBA a couple of years after the Olympics and became an all-star himself. And here are the seven NCAA players to make that team. The first was Jay Arnett from the University of Texas. He had a decent NBA career. We also had Terry Dissinger of Purdue University and Daryl Imhoff from the University of California, who both later became NBA All-Stars. The last four of the NCAA players not only went on to become NBA All-Stars, but all four are in the Hall of Fame as individual players. They are Walt Bellamy from the University of Indiana, Jerry Lucas from Ohio State University, Jerry West from West Virginia University, and Oscar Robertson from the University of Cincinnati. West and Robertson were clearly the two best players on the team and were named co-captains, not only for their play, but also for their natural leadership. It was also obvious to the NBA that they were the two best players, as Oscar Robertson was later drafted with the first overall pick by the Cincinnati Royals, and Jerry West was picked second by the newly relocated Los Angeles Lakers. So off they went to Rome, Italy for the Olympic competition. The Olympics began on August 25th and closed on September 11th. The tournament format was quite odd. They played the entire tournament in a round-robin format. A total of 16 teams qualified for the Olympics, and they were then divided into groups of four and played their first three games in the previously mentioned round-robin format. The two teams from each group to make it to the second round would then be put into two new groups of four, and the same round-robin format would be played again. Then, the top two teams from each of those groups would go into the third and final stage where they would play round-robin again to determine medals. The only weird thing about this was the fact that in the final medal stage round, the four teams will have played one of the other teams in the second round. The result of that second round game would count again for the third round. So, in that final round, each team only played the two teams that they hadn't played yet. I tell you, this is one weird format. But, as long as you keep winning all your games, then you should still end up with the gold medal. In the first round robin stage, the United States defeated Italy by a score of 88 to 54, Japan by a score of 125 to 66, and Hungary 107 to 63. They completely demolished the competition in the first round. Their closest game was a 34 point victory. That easily put them into the second stage for another round robin. In that second stage, they defeated Yugoslavia 104 to 42. They defeated Uruguay 108 to 50. These were 50 and 60 point victories 
essentially. The United States could not be stopped. They ran a fast break style of basketball, which was a bit unusual in those days. At the Olympics, most teams played a slow down half court offense where the coach called nearly every single play. But coach Pete Newell knew that what he had in his squad and he knew that running the floor and putting the pressure on the other team was going to be crucial to victory. He knew that the other teams would not be able to keep up, at least not for long. And he was absolutely correct in his assessment. In practice, the team would run the three man weave constantly Constantly. Coach Newell wanted his players flying down the court and he did not want the basketball to touch the floor. He wanted passes only that led to a layup. Now that does not mean that they never dribbled, of course they did, but they practiced that fast break and became a well-oiled machine by the time the Olympics arrived. With every defensive rebound or steal, the US team was flying down court for easy layups. But their sixth game of the Olympics was against the Soviet Union. This was the height of the Cold War. And it was the Americans against the Soviets. It was democracy versus communism. During the Cold War, any time that Americans were competing against Soviets, it was a big deal. It could have been chess with Bobby Fischer against Boris Spatsky. It could have been checkers or Monopoly. No matter what the game was, when it was the United States versus the Soviet Union, it was must-see television. The Soviets were 5-1 going into this game against the Americans. They were winning their games by 20 and 30 points themselves, except for the one stumble against Brazil. The Soviet strategy for this game against the Americans was to be as rough as possible. They were going to commit hard fouls, and they saw nothing wrong with a little extra shot or push. They wanted to physically intimidate the Americans, and I do not fault them for that strategy. It probably was the best strategy they had available to them. I am a very competitive person myself, and I have to be honest, if I had been the Soviet coach, I would probably have done the same thing. I am all about winning the game by any means within the rules. It turned out that the game was the closest game of the Olympics for the Americans, but they still won by 24 points. Jerry West led the way with 19 points, and the Americans won by a score of 81 to 57. But the Soviets finished second in the group, so both teams moved into the medal stage of the tournament, where both the Americans and the Soviets would have to play against Brazil and Italy to determine the standings for medals. In the final round robin, the Americans defeated Italy 112-81, and they defeated Brazil 90-63. Two more dominant victories and a perfect record at the Olympics. They won all eight of their games that they played by an average of 42 points. Up to that point, that was the most dominant Olympic performance in history. That 42-point average margin of victory would stand until 1992 when the Dream Team averaged 44-point victories. It was gold again for the Americans, and up to that point, no other country had ever won Olympic gold in basketball other than the United States. Today, the entire team goes up to the podium to receive their medals, but back then, only the captains went to the podium. The rest of the team hung back and received their medals in private, so Oscar Robertson and Jerry West, representing their teammates, accepted their gold medals in front of a packed arena. So, in 2010, when they were inducted into the Hall of Fame, the two co-captains went to the podium to share some words about the experience of representing their country. I have put links down in the description to not only that game against the Soviets, but also to their Hall of Fame speeches. So, go down to the description to check those out. The 1960 team was arguably the greatest amateur team ever assembled. No other team dominated Olympic competition the way they, they did during the amateur era. They deserve their spot in the Hall of Fame.
Well, that does it for today. Thank you for taking time to stop by and listen. Join us next week when we share the story of the last ABA player to retire from basketball. He played for 19 seasons after the ABA merged into the NBA. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you'll find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.